Right. I mean, just a good example is like one of the European VCs that I was speaking to during trying to raise my seed round. They asked me to give like a 10 year discounted cash flow of how much money we were going to make in the next 10 years. And I like, as soon as they asked for that, I was like, you guys have no fucking clue what you're getting yourselves into. Hello and welcome to Associated, a podcast making venture capital more accessible. My name is Francesca and I'm one of three co-hosts here on the podcast. And I'm so delighted to be introducing you to our last Christmas special episode where we interview Dennis Kent, CEO of Prolific Machines, a lab-grown meat company based in the States. I'm so excited about introducing this episode to you all as I find that it gives such a refreshing, fun and intelligent perspective on a fundraising journey from a founder who is originally from Europe but has made the very brave journey of starting up a company in the States. So without further ado, here we go. Nice. Well, to start off with, please, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I'm Dennis Kent. I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Prolific Machines. And how would you describe what you do for what's your startup? Prolific Machines is inventing a new way to grow cells. And basically what we're doing is eliminating the need for recombinant proteins, which are these extremely expensive things that you need to add into media, which is like the soup that cells grow in. And these media costs account for somewhere between 60 to 90% of total costs in cultured meat production and other things uh, like cell-based therapies and basically anything where you need to grow cells that you need these recombinant proteins and they're extremely expensive and so uh, we found a way to eliminate them very very cool and how did you get into this area so i was previously in academia i was researching stem cells trying to figure out how the liver regenerates and doing a lot of stem cell screening. So I I knew enough about stem cell biology to know that these recombinant proteins were going to be a problem. I became quite interested in the climate because my hometown's in southeast Turkey and it got overrun with Syrian refugees during my PhD. And so I, I I started working with the Syrian refugees. I took a break from my PhD to go and help her. So I interacted with a lot of them. And so I became quite interested in refugees generally. And the UN around about that same time published their climate report saying that by 2050, there'll be somewhere between 300 million and a billion climate refugees, which was very scary. And I had just seen a 600,000 person refugee crisis in Antioch, my hometown. And 600,000 refugees is like a completely unmanageable number of refugees. So 300 million to a billion is, is very scary. And so I became interested in trying to use my stem cell biology skills to help address that in some way. And so I was kind of thinking about like, where is the overlap between what I can do and this problem? And that led me to cultured meat as an industry. I'm sure you guys are familiar, but like meat production causes a lot of greenhouse gas emissions amongst other issues. And so initially I just wanted to get a job at a cultured meat company. And so I, I started talking to the cultured meat companies and I kept on asking them the same problem around like, what are you going to do about these recombinant proteins? 
And I kept on getting the same answer, which was this sort of techno-optimism that as they scaled, this problem was just going to magically sort itself out. And I wasn't entirely convinced that that was true. And I crunched some numbers, and other people have crunched some numbers, and came to the conclusion that this whole industry might not be economically viable. And that was quite concerning because I think it's an industry that should exist and it's a lot of good that could come out of it, both fast and for, you know, billions of animals. And so I think it's a good use of time to try and improve the probability of this industry existing. And so that's that's why I'm doing that's why I'm doing this. And can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Because we know that you're currently in the U.S., but yeah. obviously you've spent some time in the U.K. and in Europe. And so what's been the journey, basically, of you getting to the U.S., uh, rationalization, and, and, and why did you decide to kind of build the company there? Yeah. Initially, I actually was interested in starting the company in the U.K., and I spoke to an accelerator in London, and... The terms that they offered me, they liked the idea. And the terms that they offered me was £50,000 for 10% of the company. And then I applied for uh, a couple US accelerators and they offered me you know, $500,000 for 10% of the company. And so like, the terms were very different. Honestly, I found American VCs to be much more palatable than European VCs, at least for me. Not that you you ladies are wonderful, but don't, don't date me wrong. Thank you. Um, but but in terms of palatable, is is it kind of back to that story of risk appetite, just how they see the world, and then the valuation component? Right, right. I mean, just a good example. It's like one of the European VCs that I was speaking to during trying to raise my seed round. They were like, they asked me to give like a ten year discounted cash flow of how much money we were going to make in the next ten years. As soon as they asked for that, I was like, you guys have no fucking clue what you're getting yourselves into. Because <laughs> it's like, with real innovation, you have no idea how long it's going to take. So, it, and if you knew, then there would be no point doing the innovation because you'd already have the answers. And so when you're like really trying to invent something from scratch, you don't know what your 10-year discounted cash flow is going to be because you don't know whether it's going to take you, you know, two years to build this or 10 years to build this. And most VCs don't like that. <laughs> Understandably, right? Because they, they need to make a return for them to make a living. And so there's like very, very few VCs who will look at something as risky as prolific and be like, cool, I'm going to do it because I think it'll be good for the world if it works. And, you know, it will make a lot of money if it works, but there's also a good chance that it just might not. So I have a lot of respect for those VCs, you know. It's, it's quite easy as a VC to just, like, go in at, a, like, a growth stage company that already has, like, a shit ton of traction and a product. And, you know, like, that's, in my mind, is, like, not the sort of VC that I have a lot of respect for. The sort of VC that I have a lot of respect for is someone who can make a decision when there's nothing. No product, just a team and an idea, no traction, a uh, huge amount of technical risk, but a huge win for the world if it can work. And like the VCs that can make decisions in those circumstances, I think are the VCs that add the most value to the world because those are often the ideas that really need to be funded and are chronically underfunded. 
So yeah, this is something I feel passionately about. I think we should be allocating more money into hard problems rather than just going for easy, profitable wins. And honestly, I found American VCs to be much more palatable than European VCs. So I ended up like we, we applied to IndieBio, which is like a, quite a famous biotech accelerator. And within 24 hours, they were like, we really like this. Like you, you guys should, you guys should come out here. And I was kind of sick of Northern European weather. <laughs> and so the idea of like living in California appealed to me. I also had these like big dreams about, you know, waking up and surfing in the morning and, you know, like enjoying like the Californian lifestyle, which hasn't really materialized. <laughs> it turns out starting a startup is quite all encompassing. But I did have these big hopes and dreams about my wonderful Californian lifestyle. So yeah, that's, that's why I came to California. Nice. And and are your co-founders also from from Europe or the US? Like, what, did you and what was that conversation like? Like, okay, that's, that's better offer. But we were just discussing this off air. It was in the pandemic. You know, probably some of you were in relationships. How like with family, with with other halves. So yeah. lots of big decisions here. It's not just I'm going to pop over to I mean Ireland or something like that. It's it's a big big decision. So. Yeah, I would like to dive a little bit deeper into that. Yeah. So one of my co-founders is South African and the other one is Dutch. And so no, no, no one's from California. It was not easy to convince everyone to move to California. There's a lot of convincing Europeans to move to America generally is not trivial because they're scared of all like the crazy people and there is like some justification to that but there's also a lot of good things in America and in my mind the positives outweigh the negatives but I understand why for some people they do not and and was the the rationale behind getting everyone to move simply because the valuation was better or were there other factors that you take into consideration? So I think the number one reason was that the Bay Area specifically is, in my opinion, the best place in the world to start a company. It has uh, a huge density of talent and a huge density of money and the infrastructure to support rapidly growing startups is here. And I don't think that's going to change. And how has the move, if at all, shaped the way that you think about building the startup that, that you're currently, you know, running that's kind of all-encompassing? And has anything surprised you about, you know, the way that you now think about building a startup? I think if I was doing it again, I would just skip all of the European VC conversations and have just gone straight to the American VCs and not wasted my time. And I think the biggest difference is like appetite for risk. And you can like explore why, like there's a lot of hypotheses for why the, the appetite for risk is so different, but I think it is very different. And I think if you're, if you have a like a crazy idea and you're young and you have no track record of starting a company before, you kind of need people who have a large appetite for risk to back you. And if you're like dealing with VCs who have this like super conservative mindset and constantly want to minimize risk, I think that's a really hard environment to start a really 
hard startup in. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like Silicon Valley is like one of the few places in the world where if you're like an 18-year-old with a crazy idea, you won't just be completely discounted. Like people will take you seriously. And that's that's a pretty amazing thing. Like most places in the world, if you're an 18-year-old with a crazy idea, people will just be like, what are you doing here? You know, when you go back to school or something. But I think there's been enough like 18-year-olds with crazy ideas that have ended up starting, you know, multi-billion dollar companies that now investors think twice before discounting the crazy 18-year-olds. And I think that's an interesting like thing to think about with American and, 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 and European VCs because in Europe, there haven't been that many 18-year-olds that have started you know, multi-billion dollar companies, whereas in the US, there have. And so I think that has an impact on investor psychology because if you're a American investor and you passed on this crazy 18-year-old and that crazy 18-year-old ended up creating a multi-billion dollar company, that will stay with you for the rest of your life. That you had the opportunity to invest in this company at, you know, like a two or three million dollar valuation and you passed and you could have become, you know, wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. That's something that will stick in that investor's mind. So the next time they encounter another crazy 18-year-old, they're far less likely to just automatically discount what they're saying. But in Europe, because there haven't been many crazy 18-year-olds that have started multi-billion dollar companies, every time a European VC has passed on an 18-year-old, they've been right. And so I think that changes how they then view the next crazy young person that they see, you know. <clears throat> so I think that's an interesting hypothesis on why there are differences between European and American VCs. The other, the other like prevailing hypothesis, of course, is that Americans were somehow selected for as being less risk averse because, you know, in the 1800s, getting on a boat and traveling <laughs> for six months to somewhere that nobody had ever been before and somewhere that you may never come back from was, was a pretty risky proposition. And so if all Americans or most Americans are descendants from those people, then it's, it's possible that, you know, that you've selected for a group of people that are more willing to take risks. And that might be why their venture capital industry is so successful relative to Europeans. That's a very interesting hypothesis, for sure. Descendants of risk takers, it's in their blood. And maybe just touching on the storyline. So you got into IndieBio and convinced your co-founders to move to, to the US. What, what happened next? So then we ended up breaking the IndieBio record for the fastest any company raised a seed round eight days into the batch. It was led by a guy called Arvind Gupta, who is a partner at Mayfield and quite a well-known investor in uh, Cultured Me. He was like famously the first check into a bunch of Cultured Me companies like Upside, Finless Foods, all these guys. Yeah, that was like, it was kind of like out of an episode of Silicon Valley, the TV show. If you guys have watched that, we were like in his like dojo and he was like massage gunning himself, like asking us about like markets. So that we like went on a hike and it was, it was, it was all kind of crazy. And then 
post-seed round, we made some really good hires uh, and then broke the indie buyer record again for the fastest any company raised the Series A, which was about six months after our seed round. And that was led by Bill Gates' climate change fund, Break for Energy Ventures, like nearly 40 million-ish. And so now we are building like a 20,000 square foot facility in Emeryville. And yeah, you guys are invited. Come, come visit. <laughs> yes, please. And maybe diving a little bit deeper into that that fundraising journey of, of it being so fast. I mean, that's phenomenal. Huge congratulations on that front. How how did those conversations start? Very often investors want to see milestones, particularly when it comes to the technology in, in cultured meat from my own experience. So yeah, we'd love to know a little bit more about that. Yeah. One of the things that I really valued about IndieBio is that they kind of taught you a lot about how to be an entrepreneur. And one of the graphs that will always stay with me is this relationship between reality and storytelling. And so Poe Bronson, the managing director, he has this graph that he loves drawing on whiteboards, which is like the importance of, of storytelling starts off like really high and then decreases over time. And the importance of reality starts off very low and increases over time. And so I think at the very start, when you have nothing other than an idea and a team, what you really need to be extremely good at is storytelling and being able to, you know, paint this picture for why something is going to be massively successful. And I think if you don't have someone on your team, ideally you have multiple people on your team who can do that but at least one person on your team should be able to do that really well. If you don't have that, I think it's really, really hard. Even if you do have that, it's really hard. <laughs> but eventually, I think you don't need that because if you have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in sales annually, then who cares if you're good at storytelling or not? You know, it's like the market is clearly indicating that people want this. So I think, yeah, it's just in the early days for fundraising, it's mainly storytelling and the quality of your team. And can we uh, talk a little bit about even like your discernment in that first, you know, seed round, but then also the Series A, how quick it was. But I also assume that you all did a lot of kind of preparation work to understand who was the right fit for you and uh, how these people could, you know, really add value, hopefully, to what you all at Proofing Machines would become. So how did you think about, you know, that internal team like there's basically marriage <laughs> and preparation for marriage and then did anything like geography ever come into your mind in terms of understanding you know if this person would be a, the right fit for you all at prolific machines or not yeah there's a lot to unpack there so on the hiring front we wanted people who would be willing to move to the bay area because we kind of decided that this would be the best place to do it i've become the customer of the for a company called Legal Pad that gets people US visas. And I've I've unwillingly become an expert in the US immigration system because I've had to go through this so many times with so many different employees. So yeah, I wasn't expecting to get good at US immigration because it fucking sucks. <laughs> um but I think hiring is an interesting one. It's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and a lot of my time trying to do. I think, so Sam Altman has a saying that I really like, which is that it's 
easier to start a hard startup than it is to start an easy startup. And that seems really counterintuitive, but I think it's very true. And I think the reason is because the most talented people in the world want to work on hard problems that they think are like really intellectually demanding and they love the challenge of it. And the, the most motivated people in the world want to work on problems that they feel are like existential risks. So I think all of the startups trying to solve something like climate change, for example, they have this really big tailwind, which is that most people agree that this is an existential threat to humanity. And because of that, you have an advantage in recruiting over companies who are, say, you know, creating the 150th photo sharing app. We currently have 19 people prolific and 18 of them are scientists or engineers. I hired my first business person recently, which was a big step for me. I, so most of the people that we've hired have been in the Bay Area already, just because there's so much talent out here, like just mining the local universities alone, like Stanford, Berkeley, and UCSF provides like a constant stream of in incredibly smart people. So we've, we, we kind of mined those schools. The people who we brought from Europe were like friends of ours who were willing to take a risk and excited by nice weather. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of like biotech companies that try and build like early sales and marketing teams and business development teams. And generally, I think it's a mistake. Like my opinion is that you should just be a completely laser focused on building an amazing product that people love. Just forget about everything else until you have that. And then once you have that, you can worry about everything else. But I kind of see other, like I see other cultured meat companies, for example, and they have a bunch of sales and marketing and business development people. And it's like, you guys don't even have a product that people want. You don't have anything on the market. You're not selling anything. Like why? Like to me, it doesn't seem like a good investment of, of capital. So yeah. I basically only hire scientists and engineers. But on the VC front, yeah, I mean, I've always been of the opinion that you should maximize for the highest quality partner in the room, not for uh, minimizing dilution. I see a lot of founders <clears throat> try really hard to shop around for the best deal in order to minimize dilution, which I think is a mistake. Like some people spend like, 18 months trying to raise a seed round because they want a slightly higher valuation, I think it's a mistake. Both because it's a waste of time, but also because you should just take the first reasonable deal that you get from a high quality partner and just move on and build your company rather than try and like fuck around getting a slightly higher valuation. I think it's a common trap. And the really, the, the really good partners will add so much value that the slightly higher dilution that you may have taken will in the long term be meaningless because your company will be far more valuable if you have the right people around the table. So that's why, for example, like I went with uh, Breakthrough for our Series A, not because they gave me the highest valuation I could get, but just because I thought that they would be the best VC in the world to lead IA. And so I didn't shop around. And do you think, I mean, you've sort of Pseudo answered this question already, but would love to hear it from your perspective, but also maybe from your, your peers' perspective too, if you have a peer group in, in the Bay. Do you believe that it is, you know, easier to 
fundraise in the U.S. than in Europe? Or do you believe that there's, you know, other factors like industry or, or other things that prevent that? There's no doubt in my mind that it's easier in the Bay Area. Absolutely no doubt in my mind. I was having conversations with European VCs, which I now regret because it was a waste of time. But yeah, the and, difference. And, the, and why, why, yeah, why would, sorry. The valuations that valuation. was much lower. But, yeah, I don't want to generalize too much because I think that there are some, some great European VCs as well. But I think at least with the European VCs that I've spoken to, they don't seem to be as okay with really hard technical problems and the idea that there's a shit ton of R&D that needs to happen before this is going to work and it's going to be many, many years before we're making any money. That is a tough pill to swallow for a lot of VCs. And you kind of have to be okay with having really long time horizons and taking on a lot of technical risk. And I think... I mean, this is like, why are there so many software startups? Like, I hate most software startups. And, <laughs> and but the reason why there's so many is because there's not that much technical risk in a software startup. Like someone can spin up a, a new piece of software in, you know, two or three weeks and you can be monetizing it by the end of the month. You know, that's just not the case with inventing a new way to grow cells. I'm curious to know, combining that with your, your fundraising journey, a classic question is who are your competitors, et cetera. Have you seen any differences between companies that are in the US working in this space versus the, the European players that are out there? I think one of the differences is appetite to fully embrace synthetic biology. So the, the American companies are... Almost all of them are pro-genetic engineering and trying to just make these cells as good as they can be, us included. So I think that's the way to go. I'm I'm pro-GMO and for a number of reasons. I don't I don't know if I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that genetic modifications are not bad and we should not be afraid of them, even though there has been this really big marketing campaigns. So, that has been trying to convince people otherwise and labeling it as like Franken food and all of this stuff, which I think is a very bad idea and very dangerous because if we don't have the tools that we need to combat climate change, then I think we have a really big problem on our hands. And I think that the genetic engineering and synthetic biology generally is one of the most powerful tools that we have. And so we should use it to try and save ourselves rather than just like push it away and lock it away because it has some potentially harmful manifestations, which of course it does. Like any new technology can be applied for positive or negative things. It's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like a hammer, you know, it's like a tool. Like you can use a hammer to build a school or a hospital. You could also build a hammer. You can use a hammer to kill someone. It doesn't mean that, you know, we shouldn't allow hammers. And I was wondering, so obviously you talked about how you all are very much differentiated from even some of the places that you interviewed at at the very beginning, trying to see if you could be part of the culture meat industry as just an employee. Mm -hmm. Do you have kind of like who you sell to at the end of the day, I assume is this market is, is so big and you're trying to solve such a large global problem. A lot of these entities, I assume, will have to be global in nature and kind of just looking at 
the cultured meat landscape from from my perspective. I know a lot of them are based in and around, you know, like the Netherlands, which is like a, a huge proponent of, of cultured meats and uh, and being kind of uh, at the forefront of this space. So have you found that even any of these preliminary conversations feel differently when talking to entities in Europe versus in the U.S.? Yeah, so all customers will just be normal people. You know, we're going to make meat products and sell to the masses, hopefully. We are actually developing like both genetically engineered and non-genetically engineered versions of doing what we're doing specifically to sell to Europe because genetic engineering, like I said, I think is the way to go. But there is legislation in Europe that makes it quite hard for companies to sell genetically engineered products. And so we're working on a non-GMO version of what we're doing as well. Not because I think GMO is bad, but just because <laughs> I think it's good for us to be able to sell in Europe as well. Yeah, the Netherlands is, is, is definitely the best place in Europe for this. But relative to how many cultured meat companies are in... I mean, there's more cultured meat companies in Emeryville which, than there are in the Netherlands. To just give you... That's just like... A, a, a tiny part of the Bay Area has more cultured meat companies than the entirety of Netherlands. Just to give you an idea. So I do think that the Netherlands is a drop in the ocean relative to the U.S. And I wanted to ask maybe a little bit more of a, of a broad question to see if you had an opinion on it. So there've been kind of so many reports, even in the last six months, of so many different U.S. funds opening up European offices and, and continuing to expand. And but this time in a different way. Initially, you know, they were like doing one-off deals or they were flying over every few months. Now they've they physically kind of like hired people and, and set up spaces. Why do you think maybe that's happening? And especially kind of right now. What, what do you believe may be a catalyst, uh, especially given, you know, your stance on how more favorable you believe building a company in California may be? I think the biggest thing that Europe has going for it is a highly educated and well-trained workforce. There's a lot of smart people out there that are being underutilized, in my opinion. And so that, in my mind, is the number one argument for setting up an office or lab in Europe. Well, there's a lot of super smart people in America as well, but there's already a lot of demand for those super smart people. Yeah, it's hard though, because it does, it like these things snowball, like what's happened in the Bay Area is a very clear example of it, where there was this initial wave of success and then a bunch of founders became extremely wealthy and then most of those founders reinvested their money into more startups which then created more founders that were extremely wealthy that then reinvested their money and this wealth creation drew in more vcs into the area which drew in more talent into the area and then because there were more talent then there were even more vcs and this this whole thing just like snowballed and now this like you look like for look around me it's like i can't throw a rock without hitting like a car t-cell company so yeah and why do you believe maybe some of the talent is is underutilized in your i think that like this this the snowballing effect that has happened in the bay area hasn't happened in europe and people might be trying to get it started but it's very so something that's very hard to to get started but once it's started it's it's it, it's self-propagating and so the talent in Europe, I think, is underutilized because this sort of innovation snowball effect hasn't really happened in Europe. And whether it will or not, I think, is still unclear to me. 
And and maybe we've talked quite nicely about why you've started Prolific Machines, where you are now, but it'd be great to hear a little more about the future and your plans. You alluded there that you're already thinking about Europe, which is fantastic, but maybe diving yeah, into what, what that funding journey you're expecting to look like, when you think it's a good time to look into Europe, maybe even set up shop back home at some point. Yeah, it'd be great to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so we see Prolific Machines as a biomanufacturing umbrella company with a bunch of different brands underneath it because basically the technology that we're building is just a way to grow cells better than anyone else can grow cells. And so we think that there'll probably be like a pet food brand that brings to market, you know, cultured meat for dogs and cats. And I think there'll be like a human food brand that brings to market cultured meat for humans and a variety of different species. And I think we'll have like a cell-based therapy brand that takes, you know, uses this technology to make like CAR T-cells or mm, any sort of like IPS-derived cell-based therapy. And I think there could be like a regenerative medicine company. Like they're basically, like, there could be like a bunch of different applications of this. So we're kind of fleshing those out and then we'll either spin out additional companies or just license it to other companies. So in terms of fundraising, our next round will be uh, Series B. We're aiming for early 2023, looking in the realms of 300 million-ish as a raise. Nice. And and are you expecting that to be predominantly US or are you open-minded to, you know, elsewhere? I'm open-minded to anywhere that has the best partners in the, you know, in the world. And and from like a expanding office space, is that something that you're thinking about doing or is think- it always going to be like core US and then when it feels right to maybe launch um, elsewhere, maybe Amsterdam, given our conversation. <laughs> I think ultimately we're going to need like large manufacturing facilities on every continent and perhaps multiple on each continent if you want to make a meaningful impact on climate change. So absolutely we'll be in, I think that the roadmap for us will be US first and then China and then Europe. Yeah, I mean, that that's a, a fascinating space. It kind of does does make sense, you know, where the the partners that you have are in alignment with how big of a vision that you have. And so you're going after the biggest markets because you want to tackle the problem the fastest. And, and so all these things kind of stack on top of each other. And 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 potentially if you didn't have those kind of big vision aligned partners at the beginning you wouldn't necessarily be going down this specific path. But I'd love to hear your perspective on Europe, as you know, even better than me with my American accent, has so many different kinds of cultures and, and just kind of groups of people that make up the landscape, which is, is one of the reasons why a lot of people don't go to Europe very quickly in terms of expansion, because they, they have to understand so many different geographical spaces, but also cultural spaces. And, you know, U.S. has has a little less than that, in my opinion. China maybe has has a little less than that, especially in comparison to, to Europe. So how do you all think about getting up to speed the fastest about cultural overlaps uh, just to make sure that, you know, you are expanding and, and, and doing it in an efficient way? 
Well, it's actually interesting that you, you say that because in my mind, there are more cultural differences between an American in San Francisco and an American in Mississippi than there are between a European in England and a European in Holland and a European in Germany. You know, I think that like those cultural differences are smaller than the cultural differences I see in America between different parts of America. Yeah, so that almost makes the the question even in, more interesting. So as you as you expand, because you know the VCs that are moving from from the U.S. to Europe are having to do this as well, and they're taking the bet that they will be able to do it in a fast and efficient way to be able to compete with the local, you know, VCs. In in this same way, as you know, this space is is heating up. You know, this way more than us, and and you're going to market very quickly against a quite quite a few other competitors. How are you thinking about even you know just like ad- adopting maybe or figuring out? these different landscapes that you're trying to enter into and, and, and still trying to sell to all of them. Yeah. So I think with all cultured meat, you're supply constrained at the start and you're extremely supply constrained, not even like a little bit supply, supply constrained. And so the, like we're, we're building this facility in Emeryville and even with like a thousand liter reactor, which is like the most, that we can fit in our current facility with the sea train going up to the thousand liter reactor. We can produce enough meat to, 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 to cater for, you know, maximum, maximum 10 restaurants. You know, it's not like, it's not like we have a huge amount of product to be able to sell. And even if, you know, if we build a pilot manufacturing facility that is hundred times bigger than what we're currently building, that will still not even meet a, a small proportion of the demand in the Bay Area alone. And so that's the thing you need to like think about with meat is that it's something that most people eat every day and some people eat multiple times a day. And so the demand in terms of volume is unbelievably vast, unfathomably vast. And so I think that there's enough demand in the US to keep us busy for like a decade or more. And then, yeah, that's not even not even taking into account like the neighboring countries like Canada and Mexico. Sorry. So basically, to summarize, I'm not too concerned about demand. I'm more concerned about supply. Understood. Super interesting. Final question for me is, would you give to founders who are on that journey of, of looking for funding right now? Maybe like it it could just be for alternative proteins, but maybe just if you have a, a broader perspective, that would be fantastic. And then maybe zoom in on on this particular Synbio space that you're working in right now. Be curious to know if there's some differences. So I think my advice would change depending on what stage they're at. If you're at the initial stage where you just have an idea and you're looking for your first investment, my advice would be, and assuming you have not started a company before and you don't have a track record. So, so if you have started a company before and you have a track record, things are very different because VCs put you in a different bucket in their mind and you probably already have a ton of money so you don't even need the VCs, which interestingly makes them want you even more because like, it's, like fundraising is just like dating. Like the more you need it, the more you, you, the more desperate you are, the less people want you. And 
like the best thing you can say to an investor is that I don't need any money right now. It just like fucking it like triggers something in their mind. You know, you can like see the you can see the the like do not compute cogs turning. So that's the best the best way to fundraise is to tell VCs that you don't need their money. So if you've already started a company, you just skip it all together and they'll give you money anyway. If you if you haven't started a company and you don't have a track record, I think the best thing to do is to go to an accelerator because they normally will take big risks and they will teach you how to be an entrepreneur. And I think that education is the most valuable part of going to an accelerator. Like I had no idea how to start a company before I came to IndieBio and they taught you everything. And yeah, if you, yeah. So if you're in the bio space, I definitely advise IndieBio. If you're in the software space, I would advise Y Combinator. After that, it is when it becomes more difficult. It's relatively easy to get into an accelerator. Seed rounds end up killing a lot of companies because they can't raise them. And then series A's end up killing even more companies because they can't raise them. What worked for me, and this, like, I, I think like it's just a general word of warning with advice is that like advice tends not to be super generalizable. So just because something worked for me doesn't mean that it will work for anyone listening to this. But what worked for me is starting the fundraising process earlier than you feel comfortable. Because there is this tendency to think, oh, you know, I'm not ready, or like, I need X, Y, and Z to raise a seed round or a series A. And the problem is, as a founder, especially if you're a first-time founder, you may not be in the best position to decide what you need to do a seed round or a series A. And the thoughts that you have in your head are likely to be inaccurate. And so I think the best way to figure out whether what's in your head is true is to treat it like an experiment, test it empirically. And so what I did was kind of took the VCs as my like experimental group, like a small number of VCs, say like three, and you go to them with what you have and you say, okay, like this is what I want to do. This is, you know, the money that I want to raise. And you see how they respond. And... If it doesn't go well, then it's not a big problem. At least you've validated your assumption that you do not have enough data to do the seed round or your Series A. And if it does go well, then it's great because then you've done what you needed to do. And so I think like that sort of like initial test with a small number of VCs where even if it doesn't go well, you still have the entire VC landscape is a good idea and is not something that that's not like advice that is generally given. Like the advice that's generally given is you want a really big funnel, you know, talk to hundreds of VCs and then narrow down the funnel. But the problem with that approach is that if you talk to hundreds of VCs and it doesn't go well, now they have a negative opinion of you and you've burnt that bridge. And so I think it's much smarter to talk to a small number of VCs at first and just do a little test run. Yeah, I, I remember we used to say to just kind of some of the founders that we worked with, you have like three tranches. The, 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 the first tranche is just like the people that you know you need to be kind of prepared for. And that doesn't necessarily mean like product prepared, but just like mentally prepared for and know the answers to the questions. And you really, really want them. The, the B class is like the people that you kind of want. Uh, they would be great partners, but like they're not the people that you want to like really lead the round and really be, you know, wedded to. And the C class is like the group of people that like could be really interesting to just get their perspective from. And then you just kind of move around the tranches with really small groups until you get like the right 
fit for yourself and to get as much data points as you to figure out like, you know, timing and everything like that too. So I think that's a, that's a really good feedback for you to provide to, to other people. My last question is just around, you know, we have to always tie this back a little bit to, to your, to your time in Europe. And so I, I'd love to get your, your thought process on what were a lot of the benefits to you from moving from Europe to the U.S. and and maybe even like your perspective on on how you believe VCs viewed you, given you made that leap. You know, there's there's so many things that I have in my head about like maybe how you were perceived more positive in a more positive light because of I don't know your background or, or anything like that. But I'd love to to know how how you think maybe those things have worked in your favor. Yeah. I mean, it was an interesting time. I was incorporating the company at the start of the COVID pandemic where everyone was like freaking the fuck out. And I remember like sitting on my like my mom's balcony in southern Turkey, like incorporating this company with no idea what I was doing. Like I'll, I'll, I kept on getting asked these questions like, how many shares do you want in your company? I was like, I have no idea. Like Googling, like how many shares should a company have? It's like 10 million seems appropriate. Oh, I put that in. Like, where do you want to incorporate your company? I was like, I have no idea. It's like, everyone's like, choose Delaware. I was like, I don't, don't even know where Delaware is. Um, anyway, so... To answer your question, I came to America and it was the middle of the COVID pandemic and IndieBio was remote and I like hustled my way over here, like got like a national interest exemption and like it was a, a massive nightmare and like like layer upon layer of like painful bureaucracy. And But eventually I made it to the U.S. And most of the other founders that were not in the U.S. did not come to the U.S. for the Indie Buyer Batch. They just did it remotely. So I think that when I arrived, I went down into the basement in Indie Bio and there was the managing... It was basically just like us and the managing director, Poe, who was from America. And he was like, you guys are here? And we were like, yeah. <laughs> he was like, how did you get here? I was like, just like just traverse like all of this like bullshit bureaucracy and so i think that that made him like us because we it like showed we cared enough to like go through all of this bureaucracy to get over here in the middle of like what this was pre-vaccine and you know everyone was like very freaked out so i think that helped you actually said something in your previous point that triggered another piece of advice that i think is really worth people hearing which is most as a, as an entrepreneur most of the investors that contact you are not lead investors most of them at least in my experience most of them just want to do follow-on investments and i think that's just because most vcs obviously not you guys but most vcs are not very good at independent thinking most vcs just want to be sheep and like let someone else make the decision and then just follow on and it's a, it's a really easy trap for founders to fall into to allocate too much time to those follow-on investors. And so my strong piece of advice is ignore all of the follow-on investors. If they want to talk to you, just say no. Ignore them completely. Just be laser-focused on the people who can lead your round. Because once you have... Because there's this common trap that, that I see people fall into, which is like they have all of these follow-on investors who are interested in putting in small amounts of money, but there's no lead. And I think it makes so much more sense to ignore all of the follow-on investors, just focus all of your energy on finding a lead. And then once you have a lead, follow-ons are easy. Like they're, they're everywhere. And so I think that's good advice. Maybe that will help someone one day. 
Definitely. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and providing your experience and your expertise. Is there anything else that maybe you'd want to share? If anyone is really interested in solving cultured meat and feels like they have skills that would be useful, they can email me, Dennis, D-N-I-Z, at prolific-machines.com. And I'd be happy to chat with you. I'm always looking for talented people to come join. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We so enjoyed recording it. And as always, please do feel free to reach out to us on email at associatedpodcast.gmail.com or on Twitter at associated underscore pod. And please do share far and wide for a Christmas treat to those you think might enjoy. Thanks again so much. And we really do wish you a fantastic holidays. Until next time. Bye.